the average American, if they sit down on a Monday morning and answer emails during the week, and that's all they do, they just answer their emails that they're getting, uh, a week's worth of emails, they wouldn't stop answering until mid-Thursday afternoon. So that's Monday morning through till mid-Thursday afternoon, just answering emails. If you then um, throw in all the meetings they're invited to, it's something like, from memory, about 137% of the working week just going to meetings and answering emails, if you did it all. So you've got all of this stuff dragging you backwards and stopping you from actually going and do, doing productive work. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Dr. Richard Clayden to the Smart Business Transformation podcast, the show that helps people with a growth mindset who are leading transformation programs. Now, Richard, um, I'm going to have a little go at introducing you, but I'll probably just hand over to you in a minute to tell me how, how well I did. Mm, okay. um, but you're basically a transdisciplinary behavioral strategist an organizational misbehaviorist and an ironist. Um, you have a fascinating background. Um, I mean, my, my, my sort of assumption is you're kind of Dilbert means McKinsey, but I'm sure you'll tell me in a minute whether I'm, I'm sort of right or not. But, um, I mean, you're currently Director of People, Culture and Change for CSC Asia Pacific. You have a degree in Fine Arts and Visual Studies, an MA in cross-cultural communication and international management, and a PhD in management. And, I mean, there's, there's, there's management gurus in America calling you a touchstone for future working management and, and currently at the forefront of modern debate. Can you try and unpack for us exactly what you do and what you are, please? So I think I, 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 the Dilbert McKinsey um, definition, I think I prefer the Dilbert side of it than, than the McKinsey, potentially. I, I, I would quite often um, do very opposing things to the, what McKinsey tries to do in organizations. I, I would sort of sit in, in quite oppositional to some, some of their major theories. Um, so what, what exactly do I do? Well, the, um, the transdisciplinary behavioral strategist thing, that's sort of an advisory kind of role for organizations that are looking to develop leaders in different ways, trying to move uh, leadership into the future so that they're much more aware of future work skills, uh, collaboration practices, creativity, creativity critical thinking, all, all of these kind of things. Uh, how do you hire people who um, might fit this? Because the standard way of, of looking for leaders is not necessarily the way that, uh, um, that you're going to find these kind of skill sets. So that that's really what I do there. And really, again, look at, how people behave and during relentless change as well. So, you know, when you're seeing certain behavioral patterns, is it because the person is resisting change or is it because they're actually just shattered, uh, or exhausted, um, totally confused by what's going on rather than, than deliberately saying, I don't want to change. So there's a whole bunch of stuff around change and leadership that I do uh, on that part of, of my work. Um, the organizational misbehaviorists thing, really we're, we're looking at uh, some statistical reported statistics on, on misbehaviors in organization. Um, we look at the, the, the distrust has gone, up, gone through the roof. People have stopped trusting politicians specifically, but also there's been real problems since 2008 with trusting leaders and, and CEOs, uh, et cetera. So you, you've got a, 
uh, real loss of trust in in the the, part of the social and and the the leadership in the organisational domains. Uh, you've then got uh, drag, which is outdated uh, methodologies of management that are costing organisations uh, in profitability and performance. Uh, you have distraction, which is the mobile phones that's causing quite a lot of uh, uh, psychological conditions in, in workplaces. People are, uh, are unable to concentrate, uh, unable to focus on work for, for very long. So the current research suggests people get distracted from a task every three minutes and five seconds and respond to that by working very quickly, which results in irritation or taking work home with them, which results in disengagement. Um, disease, we're looking at, again, the, the fact that these the workplaces today are actually genuinely hurting people and causing physiological problems. And finally, disengagement, that uh, the, uh, so the standard Gallup stat is 87% of people are disengaged. We actually don't think that you can solve disengagement by looking at disengagement. You are looking at the other uh, elements of misbehaviour. And we really focus on the word miss of misbehaviour. We're not saying things that people are behaving badly they're misbehaving. So there's the idea that good behaviors are being misperceived as bad behaviors and vice versa. So you're just trying to, you're trying to arrange and organize how people are behaving and explain why that's going on. Uh, the ironist piece is really down to my own um, PhD research. And we just look, it looks at two specific elements of organizations. It's the idea that the, the, there's always a gap between the organizational rhetoric and organizational reality. And there's always a gap between aspirations and achievements. Uh, and once you start seeing this gap, how do you then behave and, and, and survive and thrive in it? Uh, so that's what the, 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 the research sort of picks out. Uh, and really, the, the people that the research looks at are what, if, if I move out of the ironist space, they're, they're sort of the high performers in, in transformational conditions. That's, that's really what we've, we've found and we, we try to identify through all aspects of my work. Richard, there's so much to talk about there, but before we get into some of the meat, I'm really curious, what was the moment in your life when you aspired to become an organisational misbehaviourist? <laughs> um, really, uh, we were do I was doing the ironic, so the ironic manager stuff, I was doing that with um, Dr. Richard Badham, who's professional um, professor of organisational behaviour at MGSM in, in Sydney. I think it's now been rebranded as Macquarie Business School. Uh, and we were doing that for a long time, but unfortunately, you can't sell irony to organisations. It, it was fun and it was interesting, and we got interviewed on national radio, and bits and pieces were going on. But there was never any any way you could <laughs> have a career as, as uh, underpinned by the concept of irony in organisations. Um, so I met with um, a, a consultant friend in Sydney. He he was leaving uh, Sydney as I was, and. We said, look, we're both leaving. Why don't we see if we stick, put a business together? Uh, and we were looking at the sort of solving. Um, really, we, we, if I go right back to the beginning of the story, he was doing a workshop uh, on organizational toxicity. And he asked me if I had any um, stuff to help, any, any research, any research papers, any, any bits and pieces. And I gave him all my stuff and I helped, I helped him put the, um, the workshop together um, and then I went off to Hong Kong and he gave it in Sydney. And um, 
it, the response was incredible. It was a woman in tech event, and the response was incredible. The whole room blew up, um, and all these women were were saying, talking about how they were bullied and abused, and there were tears, and they cancelled the next speaker because there was so much energy in the room. And after that, he called me back. He says that we've got to do something about this. Um, how how should we do it? How do we turn what I've just done into a bunch of interventions? And we'd played around with ideas and, and because I wasn't happy with just saying what well, it is, it's toxicity and, and, uh, and toxic people. I, I was saying no, the, the toxicity isn't really the person. It, it's quite often the organization that rewards certain behaviors and it causes toxicity in the people. So it's environmental rather than, um, uh, individual qualities. Um, so he suggested organ- misbehavior, organizational misbehavior. Um, so it was really his, it was something he did that I helped. And then he came back and, and it was his idea to say, okay, you're not happy with toxicity. You're not happy with there's these bad people in organizations. So maybe misbehavior is the right term. And it seemed to fit with the fact that we were looking at misperceived behaviors all the time. I see. Now you've described this as being a $3 trillion problem. Can you <laughs> yes. just unpack that a bit more for us, please? Um, so really, we were just looking at, uh, I was trying to do a breakdown of, of how much money um, beha- sort of uh, uh, bad behaviors cost according to our, our five Ds of um, distrust, drag, distraction, um, disease, and um, uh, disengagement. And it's, it's not easy to do, uh, but when you start looking through the figures, so Gary Hamill of um, London Business School, he argues that drag in itself is is costing the U.S. economy three three trillion dollars um, annually. You say um, so, drag, yeah. So bureaucracy. Um, so so for what well, the example I, what I presented on um, email usage and meeting um, attendance. So if if you the average American if they sit down on a Monday morning and answer emails during the week. And that's all they do. They just answer their emails that they're getting. Uh, a week's worth of emails, they wouldn't stop answering until mid-Thursday afternoon. So that's Monday morning through till mid-Thursday afternoon, just answering emails. If you then um, throw in all the meetings they're invited to, it's something like, from memory, about 137% of the working week just going to meetings and answering emails if you did it all. So you've got all of this stuff dragging you backwards and stopping you from actually going and do, doing productive work. Um, distract, the, the amount of distraction we have as well, so that you, you, most people, given, given the number of times they're distracted during a, a working week or a day, only really end up doing about two and a half hours of productive work. Everything else is being you know, dragged across different parts of the organization, um, helping other people, answering emails. You're not actually doing much of what you're being paid to do in the value-adding activity. Um, so that, you know, you, you, we, we looked at all the figures. I think $3 trillion is actually quite conservative um, because if you start looking at the drag figure and the disease figure, you're, you're beginning to add, add, add many, many more billions onto the figure. Um, and so really you're just sort of saying, look, we, we've got to the point where we've designed organizations that are supposedly uh, making us more and more productive. We've got all these, these technologies to make us more productive. We've got all these theories that sort of about how, how, we, how we should work. And they're not. We're, we're suffering some of the worst productivity um, stats in, in, in the history of the Western world. Um, we, we don't, we're not improving our productivity rates at any, we're near the level we used to. 
um, people are getting more and more stressed. People are um, desperately unhappy at work. A lot of, not everyone, but a lot of people are. So you add all of this together, you take all the, the numbers from different reports, and it adds up to a huge amount of money. Well, I mean, this is so big. Um, I mean, it almost seems to be rivaling sort of climate change in terms of its <laughs> impact on the universe. Um, I did present. I presented in Sydney. Um, so we did a masterclass in Sydney in, oh, I can't remember where it was, about a year ago now. And um, someone after me afterwards sort of came up when we sort of took them through the whole experience. And they said, well, you're really, you're talking about um, sort of people people have been in the war zone it's post-traumatic stress syndrome that's what some people are experiencing that that's that's really what you're describing um and yeah i mean i think that part of that can happen i mean we, we've seen people break down in tears we've um i i mean i have i don't want to mention any names but i have personal friends that i i sort of consult to on a pro bono basis over over in hong kong and i've had them in tears from from stuff that's just happening at work um, which is really, there's there's no reason for they haven't done anything wrong. It's they've they're just feeling totally and utterly under pressure to do things in ways that perhaps aren't the way that they felt that should be done, or there's no way for them to solve the problem, and yet they're, the problem's being thrown on their head, and they have no power to do anything about it. So so their purpose and their meaning and their uh, raison d'être sort of flows out of them, and and they end up breaking down. Um, and and for me, there's 40 years worth of research showing this happening in in sort of strong culture, high tech kind of organizations. And now everybody's becoming strong culture and high tech with the digital re transformation uh, revolution going on. This kind of stuff is happening more and more. Um, so, yeah, that it, it's 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 pretty intense. And I think it's a, a major problem for the Western world at the moment. Now, I'm conscious that we're talking problems here, not solutions, but I, I do want, really want to un understand this a little bit more before, before we move into the, uh, the, the brave new future. Is this, um, I mean, I, I'm understanding this is an international trend, but are there any particular po pockets of particularly good and particularly bad that you see in your research? Uh, it, it's... So that there are there are types of company rather than rather than particular particular pockets. I mean, you, you've obviously got some of the companies in some of the European countries who are reducing working hours so that you're not getting that that I'm stuck at work for 50, 60 hour week kind of stuff going on that you get in the states. Um, but you, yeah, there are companies that that you look at and you go, that's that's the model that you should be following. Uh, and for me, there's this idea, I mean, it, it, I mean it, it's not particularly new, it's, it's a decentralization of the work. It's ownership of contextual problems. Rather than um, having everything centralized and you're just reporting to the numbers, there's a much more contextual obliquity going on. You're, they're, they're trusting you to, to understand the contextual problems and they're trusting the, the frontline staff to solve them. And then they, it, what gets solved can get reported back through the through the system, and then you have a whole bunch of experimental possibilities that that you might uh, Im, use for similar problems that pop up elsewhere in your organisation. So, uh, I, there's a certain type of organisation that's beginning to to emerge that's be, that, that is solving this problem, um, but I don't think there's a specific country. Uh, necessarily, I would love to have said Scandinavia. I mean, I, I lived and worked in Scandinavia for years, but the feedback I have from 
um, my Scandinavian friends is that it's it's impacting Scandinavia as well. It's not what it was when I was working there. Now, on your blog, you talk about Bob, uh, Bob Sutton's statement that 2017 was the year of peak asshole. <laughs> does was that just because it was 2017 at the time and it's that's that's it that was as bad as it's got or are we now on a bit of decline from a historic peak so so Saturn's work is something that I'm uh, yeah it's, it's interesting we, we use you know coming out of Australia we use the term dicks and dickheads rather than assholes and in, in, when, when we're, we're going into the emotive language um, it for me no it, it, yeah there's this idea that you, you have uh, assholes and, and dickheads and they're people that you hire and as long as you get rid of them everything's going to be fine i don't think that's the case i think that organi- organizational structure at the moment and culture and, and reporting systems and targets uh, and short-termism and and all of this kind of incentivization uh creates people who 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 are perfectly nice people but it creates bad behaviours in them. It makes them assholes and dickheads. Um, so Sutton's work is interesting because he sort of he, he calls it out. But I don't think he's he's necessarily uh, got to the. the I don't think we. I don't think we're going to get to the point where there's a peak asshole year. I think it's something that that's quite um, systemic at the moment, and we we need to look deeply into what's causing it rather than. Oh, it's just don't hire assholes, which is one of his main solutions. Now, earlier on, you said you much preferred the Dilbert side rather than McKinsey. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I'm sort of getting a, a getting a, a flavour of that, but but sort of moving into more sort of solution orientated um, yeah. uh, space. Whereabouts in an organisation? Are, are the solutions uh, going to come from? I mean, the temptation, I think, with all these things is to say it has to start at the top. Um, but 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 it, but is the you know is the things that people up and down, even you know, in the mailroom, could be doing to uh, try and resolve some of these issues? So, so for me, yeah, there there are three three ways that you can you could view this, and and one is a sort of a top down solution, one is a bottom up solution, and the other one is an open source solution, uh, and that's the one I believe in. Um, you can run experiments to fix this anywhere in the organization. Um, you know, people, so it, it really comes down to the people in the organization. They know their jobs. And if you give them the opportunity to make that job easier and more purposeful, and you say, look, how, how, how can we help you to make this job less painful for you? What do you need to make this job less painful? And they, they'll begin, they, they'll know and they'll be able to, and if you're giving them the opportunity to start trying to solve this, they will. Uh, the challenge there is they're very often so conditioned into not playing around and experimenting with different ways of working because it's, they're, they're so conditioned to I'm, I'm being told from the top that I have to do this and work this way and deliver, not I'm allowed to play around and within these wider limits of um, discretion of I, I can try this. So a lot of the stuff that we try and do is to, is to sort of retrain them into, into that kind of uh, environment, you create that environment, and then when you're in that environment, this is how you're beginning to be, have, have this greater freedom to think and play around. Uh, so you, you you get some of the stuff sort of the design thinking stuff out of Stanford and and that, those kind of techniques sort of work. We go a little bit wider than that. We we try and do the even before you get to a design thinking methodology, 
we try and do uh, okay this is how you become more creative this is how you you think critically this is what cognitive flexibility is how can we experiment with all of these kind of different cognitive processes before we even give you a process to solve a solution um and so that's that's really what we try and do is say right you guys can solve these problems you just have to be given the the, the, the tools to do it um and we'll help you do that so what would be a sort of introductory step or sort of bite-sized engagement to to get something like like that happening mm -hmm. in, a, in an organization so we would do i mean we, we like to try and do um one or two day master classes where we we take them through a um a, a, one of the concepts and then the, and the behaviors uh ideally then maybe they they'll come up with some of the complex problems they've got to that they're wrestling with and we can have a day going through okay well, here, how do we come out of this day with five or six experiments that you might launch to try and solve these complex problems and would that be um, with the leadership team or a specific business unit or any a team any or? anyone you so the, 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 the projects i'm working on at the moment we're we're sort of looking at doing a bit of both we're doing a more a uh, high level one with some of the leaders but then a a process where we're trying to select people that that in theory, we'll already have some of these abilities to think differently. Um, so we're, we're trying to, and we, we don't, we haven't sorted out quite how it's going to work yet. But we're trying to uh, sort of use some social network analysis tools to pick, diff, to find different thinkers in an organisation. Um, so MIT have this idea of out, uh, have finding wise guys and outliers, and so we're going to try and do that, and then bring them into. Um, uh, in, in, in sort of teaching the skills and then get get, get them back out and, and get, give them a bit of power to, to run experiments in the various different departments they work in. I'd also like to ask you about something completely different. You've, yeah. um, you've been on LinkedIn a lot, uh, mm. commenting on articles in, in some cases quite a provocative way and, and <laughs> trying to understand the, uh, the LinkedIn algorithm by, by uh, trying different posting techniques. Um, what have you tried and what have you learned? Um, so the, reason, the initial reason I went onto LinkedIn was to lose my academic voice a bit. Um, so I, I'm writing all this stuff, uh, which, you know, highly regarded research, but nobody was reading it outside of the researchers. So how do you, how do you get, can you make it interesting? Is it interesting for the wider pu public? And, 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 and can you make it more interesting by changing your language? Uh, so that was really... So if you look back at the way I used to post, I, wrote, I used to write quite a lot longer articles and threw them up and I was experimenting with what worked and what didn't work and changing writing styles, etc. Uh, and there was a period when, when that was going on and I found LinkedIn absolutely fascinating. It really threw interesting stuff my way and I was reading um, you know, stuff about organizations and management that I would never have accessed through the, the standard research uh, stuff that I normally do. Uh, and then, you know, maybe sort of maybe eight months, nine months ago now, something changed. And it all just became self-congratulatory. And, and a, people selling stuff that you look at and you go, that's snake oil. You, you guys don't know what you're talking about. And you're, you're, you're throwing this onto to, to LinkedIn. And, and I know because I've spent 12 years researching this stuff, what you're doing, A, isn't going to work, and, and B, has a real chance of psychologically harming the people that you're you're sort of saying you're going to help um so i i playing around with the algorithm is really just sort of to see 
you know, are people really buying into this nonsense that 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 they're there, or is it is it the algorithm that that's causing it to go viral, um, or are people really buying into to some of this snake oily, uh, low grade discussion around organisations and management? So so it's it's a style and substance thing for me. I'm I'm playing around with my style while still trying to put in genuine substance into into a. You know, what is supposedly the top professional platform in the world? You know, that they, everyone on that platform is supposed to be interested about management and leadership and business and organisation. Um, so, are they? <laughs> so, does that mean that your your hypothesis is that LinkedIn is is almost um, perpetrating organisational misbehaviour even more? So, only. So, I wouldn't say it's a hypothesis. I mean that. that Within the stuff that I find problematic is this idea of uh, sort of over positivity. Just just be nice and be positive, and then the organisation is going to be a great place. And and it would be wonderful if that were the case. You know, if everybody's nice and everyone is positive and happy and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, then organisational life will be incredible. But you can't wish it into being. Um, and that. Seems so. So, so that that's one of the the elements. There seems to be a wishing of it, of it into being, but the, at the same time, you've got an element of an identity construction going on. So, is it being? Is all this stuff around work makes you happy? Um, be positive. Don't be negative. Is it a, a way of of creating an identity where people are just going to do the work and not complain because? Um, if, if that part of their identity is I'm a good, happy worker, um, and that really goes deeply back into my research, where where you can't make somebody a good, happy worker if they're not doing meaningful work. You've got to have the actual good work being done. If if you get it, it it's not make someone happy despite the work. It's the work actually gives them the purpose. So, and it's it's not really a hypothesis, but it's a. I see this kind of stuff going on through LinkedIn and it does worry me quite a bit because I don't actually think it helps people. I think it, it probably hurts them. Yeah, I mean, a crude, a crude interpretation of what you've just said is you can't put lipstick on a pig. Yeah, you absolutely. Have, you have yeah. to deal with a pig. <laughs> yeah, okay. And have you reached any conclusions yet about the, the LinkedIn algorithm and um, how, to, how, to, how to get it back into a good space again? Um, so just going, just doing what I'm doing. I mean, I've a huge number of people following people have loads of people have said to me, I, I thought you'd stop writing. Um, so going back to sort of some kind of algorithm hacking, I'm at least getting a, a, my message out there again. Could it again, again, with, I mean, it's not just LinkedIn. I mean, you, face social media potentially can do a huge lot of good, but it potentially can do a huge amount of harm as well. Um, I, I just want, when I log on to LinkedIn, I want to find stuff that I want to read. Um, you know, at the moment, I'm generally going on searching stuff through the academic journals and through Google to find stuff I want to read. Whereas a year ago, I didn't need to do that. I could just go onto LinkedIn within, you know, scroll the feed for 30 seconds and I'd find four or five different articles that I, I found insightful. Um, it, it's... Potentially, the the way I've been hacking the algorithm a bit, I'm I'm beginning to get a little bit more quality stuff back in my feed again. So because people are seeing me and and we're we're 
talking on my my threads and then their stuff starts popping up in my feed feed again so it partly it's activity based and partly it's it's the the, the content that that gets um thrown out there but i'm quite enjoying it i don't i don't take it usually seriously i i, I just enjoy doing it uh, and i do find it quite often i do get quite a bit of work through it so also quite useful very good well, we might um, we might uh, find out how, how people can connect with you in a minute. But um, before we do, are there any trade secrets you can share with people about mm. how they can uh, how they can help themselves not to uh, behave organisationally inappropriately? Yeah. So I, again, I won't mention the company that I'm working with because if, if they hear this, they know who who it is, um, and they'll probably laugh when they know that I'm talking about them. Um, so. The, if we go into the irony stuff, that for me, I so so I'm, when everything I'm talking about, you've got unhealthy and, and healthy reactions to relentless change, uncertainty, ambiguity, all of, all of the kind of things that are, the, that are part of contemporary organisational life. You with the the unhealthy responses to to all of this is quite often zeal. Um, so you have a zealous, a zealous love of the organisation or a zealous hatred of the organisation. You have cognitive confusion, emotional exhaustion. Um, all of them can be very very harmful for you and the organisation. You've got some healthy ones, uh, and the, the, there's there's a games playing Machiavellian one. There's a, a role acting. I, I I just navigate my way through the organisation, and I. I display the correct behaviors. But the one I'm most interested in is the ironic response. Um, and the ironic response literally assumes that the gap between the rhetoric and reality is gonna be there, assumes that the gap between aspirations and achievements is gonna be there, and, and is, is acutely attuned to that gap. So they see, that they see the difference. And rather than getting angry that the rhetoric and reality is different. It's it's a joyous response. It, it's finding joy in the absurdity that people are thinking one thing and doing something else. And that that's that's the sort of the healthy, the humor, the the irony, the joy. That's the healthy response to to a gap, to to this relentless change. And 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 the and once you have that, you're then like, how, okay, how do I start? Even even if I can close the gap a little bit, how do I do that? Or how do I how do I solve some of these problems despite this gap going on? What might I do back, sort of in a, in a more backstage manner? What might I do behind the scenes a little bit to, to fix some problems, to, to have a chat with my colleagues and 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 um, and solve problems? And what you find is, and, and so one of the pieces I did in India uh, a year or so ago is, what you what you actually find is when when you get people who have this sort of joyous appreciation of, of the gap and the absurdity, and they don't get angry, and then they go out to have a coffee together or a glass of wine together or or um, somewhere be out outside the organisational walls. Um, and for me, if if everyone has that joyous sort of response. Your, it, the, the conversations they have is similar to being at a dinner party after the second glass of wine, where people the, the conversation starts to flow, and people really begin to to start having mean sort of deep and meaningfuls, um, and and start thinking through potential solutions to to problems, and they do it in in again in an enjoyable way. They they enjoy the conversation, so. As a, as a self-protection mechanism, irony is brilliant, and also as a, a way of, of bonding with like-minded colleagues who are also seeing the gap 
and then going out and having uh, interesting conversations with them and then going back into the organization and activating some of those conversations if, if it's not too politically dangerous to do so. Really, really useful way, uh, a way to start perceiving the problems and, and to try and answer them. Um, and the people I've spoken to, I mean, they, they actually say, you know, the guy, the people I'm working with at the moment, they actually say that quite a lot of their day, and, and they do have stressful jobs, but quite a lot of the day is bursting out laughing out of an absurdity, which is an instant release of stress, and, 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 and they get some emotional energy from it, and it gives them opportunities to keep on going. Richard, I find it absolutely fascinating that you've successfully reframed something that's regarded or has been regarded as a negative uh, force in organisations to a positive one to uh, to deal with such a massive global problem. So, uh, <laughs> so congratulations. Um, it's only taken me 12 years to get to this point of thinking. It's not been easy. <laughs> Well, thank you for, uh, for for sharing so willingly with us today. If people want to reach out to you and connect or follow some of your work, how could they do that? Um, so we've got a couple of websites, but the, the best, so the best, link, LinkedIn is, is obviously the best thing. I try and post something most days, uh, and I'm quite happy to have conversations through the, the, uh, the messaging system. So I think it's just Dr. Richard Clayton, I think, is my profile. Um, so just search for that. Uh, I've got two websites, the, but neither of them are keeping that up to date at the moment because I've got too much other work on. But one of them is theironicmanager.com and the other one is organizationalmisbehaviorist.com. Um, email, so I also work for a company called The Human Factor in Hong Kong. So you can email me at richard at thehumanfactor.net uh, if you're interested in any talking about anything I talk through. Richard, thank you so much for your time today. It's been wonderful speaking and thank you for sharing. Thank you, Ben. I've enjoyed it.